in the halls of the empire of Persia and Hoaris or Xerxes, uh, the king. And yet we are, we, we presuppose that every word in all of the Bible is profitable for us. It's for our instruction, it's for our edification, it's for building us up, for our, for our uh, correction. How do we think about the book of Esther? And then we looked two weeks ago at how to, how to think about the book, not only theologically, but Christologically. We're going to see some of those themes come up here in chapter 1. How do we think about this with respect to seeing Christ in every chapter, in every book, in the entire Bible? How do we think about those things? How do we consider the book of Esther in light of those realities? I'm going to pray, and then we'll read chapter 2, and we'll dive in. We're going to see today this sort of tale of two kingdoms. This uh, Dickens famously wrote a tale of two cities. We have a tale of two kingdoms. And one of them is put before us by the narrator in, in much detail. The kingdom of Persia. And that's where our eye naturally goes because that's what the story seems to be about. But in the backdrop, if we look carefully, we're going to find that in the very beginning, the narrator sets up for us a clash a cosmic clash between two different kings. And one uh, ends up being a parody of the true kingdom. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to see, first of all, see him in all of the scriptures, to see the risen and exalted Christ pointed to in every word of Holy Scripture. Father, we are thankful for your word. We thank you that you've caused this, this record of your dealings with your people to be written down. And even when your name is not explicitly mentioned. We, we pray that you'll give us eyes to see by your Spirit that you are present in every detail, that you are present at every place and every time, that your people are never left without your covenant presence, that even despite their own rebellion, their own sin, their own ignorance, their own turning away from you, and yet you are merciful, you are good, you persevere with your people, and you are ordering all things for your own glory and for the good of your people. We pray that you'll give us eyes to see and hearts to believe. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we begin here with this sort of historical notice. And this is more than just the setting of a, of a time in history. This puts us in a particular place. I'm going to use the word place in its most comprehensive sense. It's place in time, it's place in a chronological history, but also place the place in God's redemptive scheme with his people. We have, we're going to be introduced to a Persian ruler named Ahasuerus, uh, also known in history as Xerxes I. And Xerxes rules the Persian Empire from about 486 B.C. till somewhere around 465. And during this time in history, the Persian Empire was so utterly dominant that no one could really conceive of, of anyone rivaling them, although Greece, Egypt and Greece tried. In Early on in, in Xerxes' reign, or Ahasuerus' reign, the Egyptians revol revolted, and that was followed by a couple of rebellions in Babylon, but these were these were crushed and, and crushed pretty decisively. 
And it's probably in that time period, shortly after those two rebellions, that we find the events recorded for us in Esther, and particularly Esther chapter 1. There was another invasion that would come uh, later on in 480 to 479 B.C. of of Greece. And that ends up being, uh, through that, Xerxes is able to subjugate a number of the Grecian peoples as well. So what we're going to find, and and the, the narrator refers to 120, we read it in a minute, 127 provinces. And that wasn't ordinarily the way the kingdom in the Persian mind was divided up. That's a true statement, but it was divided by, by satraps, and there were 31 of those. Now, the narrator could have told us there were 31 regions, but he divides it up even further, 127 provinces. He wants us to be alerted to the scope of the Persian Empire. It was so vast... It was so powerful that it had, it had, at this time, had four distinct capital cities. And one of them, where our scene is in Esther chapter 1, is in Susa. It's about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf. It's, it's right near the border of today's Iran and Iraq. It's right on that, that present border. Now, what we're going to find is the, the, the real pride of Susa, the pride of, of Ahasuerus, was his palace. This is the central place that we see here in the narrative, but it was more than just a place. It was, it was pivotal to even the psyche of the Persians. And we're going to see the pride of Persia is on full display. That's really part of the point of chapter 1, is, is the, the absolute, unadulterated pride of Xerxes I, and really all of Persia. This was typically, Susa was typically his winter or spring residence because during the summer it was just hot to be in this part of the country. So there was this big open breezeway and a garden portico, which allowed for these, these cross breezes to make it a little bit more comfortable. So that's a, that's a little bit of the scene before we just dive in and read this. And I'm going to read the, the entire first chapter so we can understand what's going on is our story with God's people begins in the book of, of Esther. Hear now the word of God. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials, And his servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. This is a six-month feast. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his place, of his palace, to do as each man desired. 
Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Behuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abitha, Zathar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At, his th- at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsina, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memekin said, in the presence of the king and of the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it's vast, it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, And the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. It's an interesting setting. In fact, this is the only place in the Old Testament where a narrator describes with this kind of detail the background environment of of a scene. And the the reason is, is we're supposed to, from from the very beginning, to see just how how opulent and and how lush and rich Ohasuerus is. But but again, this is setting us up. This is kind of the classic, almost a classic Shakespearean comedy sort of formulation where you start with, Here's this great king. Here's this great figure. Let's show all of his, all, let's, see, let's see how high up on the pedestal he really is so that we can all observe how great is his fall. There is, in all these elaborate descriptions, a characterization of this king, Oasuerus. He's, he's portrayed as, as someone with just unimaginable wealth, unlimited power. He seems to be un, unrivaled. In, in all that he is and all that he does, except, as it turns out, his own wife. He can't even subdue her attention and her affection. Um, 
Not that she ought to have submitted to that. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this is to set the table. This sort of sets the stage. Imagine, if you will, here's, here's this, this palace in all of its royal splendor, and then outside are the Jews, sort of looking up, as it were, hearing the, the, the pomp of the party, hearing this, this, all the noise and seeing all the, the chariots going in and out, seeing all the, the royal regalia as the celebration goes in and out over six months. And then at the end of the six months, we have another feast for seven days to which everyone in the kingdom is invited. But the first feast was just for his officials. This was, this was a high state dinner that lasted for six months. And, and the contrast here it just couldn't be sharper between the apparent success and power of Persia contrasted against the weakness of the Jews, their insignificance, their frailty compared to Ahasuerus. And the Jews, as we mentioned in, in our introductory lesson, you know, the, the Jews were accustomed to seeing and hear, hearing the, the very word of God and seeing the hand of God regularly among them. And then all of a sudden, things have gone quiet. God doesn't speak. God seems to be silent. In fact, God doesn't even seem at first to be present. In his commentary, Gregory says this. He says, this was not the world that the Jews of the Persian Empire knew. In their world, God was silent. But they could hear the sound spilling down the western mount of Susa when the king threw his banquets in his royal gardens. In their world, God seemed absent, but the Persian political and military machine seemed almost ubiquitous. In their world, they could look up to heaven, but only see the royal Acropolis in Susa looking back down on them and casting a long shadow upon their lives. See, do you feel the weight of this? Do you feel the sense of despair among the Jews compared to the riches of the palace? Now, we're told here also just several details. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that even the description of the, the decorations here you have this, this court, you have a garden, you have in the palace the white cotton curtains and violet hangings. The kind of description that we see, the only other place we see in the Bible, this kind of description is with respect to the tabernacle. So again, our minds immediately should, should think of a contrast, a comparison. Here is the cathedral, here is the temple, as it were, of Persia, the self-worship, the temple of self-worship with all of its decorations. In our mind's eye, we ought to immediately look over and see what God had done for himself in the praise of his own name in the tabernacle. And they're setting up for us, even though God is not explicitly named, they're setting up for us a not-so-subtle comparison, a contrast. And it starts with, there's an irony here, it starts with a, what, what appears to be a negative contrast where the Jews are getting the lesser end of the stick. But when we begin to meditate upon who God is and what he has done among his people and some of the, the, the images that are present in chapter 1, we actually are, if we're thinking biblically, our minds are drawn to a much higher place where the one who sits on the throne in Susa is ultimately a weakling, despite all the apparent outward trappings of wealth and power. 
Well, then we see this whole thing with Queen Vashti. We're told in the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. He's drunk. And in his pride, he summons his own wife in a way that under Persian custom would only have been ordinarily done with a concubine, not a wife. According to Persian custom, you wouldn't do such a thing. You wouldn't summon your wife to be paraded around in front of a bunch of drunken, lecherous men. That would have been the kind of shameful act that a man might have done with his concubine, but never with his own wife. And Vashti recognizes this. Vashti recognizes that by, by being summoned to such an environment, her husband is actually thinking very very little of her, of her character, of her person, and as her, of her office as queen. And so the king is, is, is prideful, he's foolish in the way that he summons Vashti, but it, but it sets the stage for something that ends up being quite humorous. If you sort of scratch below the surface a little bit and see some of the, the statements of irony here. So here's what should have been a private matter. But the king and his drunkenness makes this public. I I want my wife to come in, put all of her royal garb on, we're told she was a beautiful woman, and then just to to parade herself in front of these men. Vashti recognizes this this is inappropriate, not just for her, but for her office as queen. She says, I'm not doing that. Recognizing that her her life may be lost in that process. But she had enough honor, she had enough dignity to reject the king's command. Well, the king is angry. In fact, we're told that he is enraged. And he summons his, or first he summons his seven eunuchs who see after his harem and ask for them to, to, to bring Vashti in. When she refuses, now he summons seven others. His wise men, his legal advisors. Now, notice what happens. He comes in, look at the question that he asks. In verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? So he, at least ostensibly, at least outwardly, he's asking, he's asking for legal advice. I have a wife. I've summoned her publicly. She refused. What does the law say? What is the recourse here? Well, what kind of answer does he get? He doesn't get legal advice. Notice what the men, the men all rallied together and said, well, this is going to be a problem for all of us because if Vashti can ignore your orders and all of our wives can ignore ours, and that's going to be a problem. Well, that's not a legal answer, is it? So this is now the second time the king has asked for something that he doesn't get. The first time he asked for his wife to come, and she doesn't come. And he, re- and he responds with anger. Well, now, in his folly, he asks for a legal opinion. He doesn't get that. He gets a personal opinion but he doesn't get angry. He actually likes this. He goes along with it. You see the the foil that's being set up. The the narrator is setting up the stage for us to begin to mock Ahasuerus. So in all of his outward power and authority and wealth and privilege and all those kinds of things, from chapter 1, he's being portrayed as a stooge. He's being portrayed as a man who doesn't even understand what's good for him who can't rule and govern in the most basic ways. Now we think about this under the New Testament. Um, 
the, the apostles charged the church to look at a man who or they are considering for office for as a deacon or an elder and say, look at his home. Can he manage his home? If he can't, Paul asked that rhetorical question. How can he be expected to manage the household of God if he can't manage in his home? Well, look at Ahasuerus. He can't manage his home. And yet, he's on a throne and ruling the largest empire in the world. So we're being set up to see him really as a comedic kind of figure, as a parody. So again, you have these, the tale of two kingdoms. The, God, the king who isn't even named is the one who's ruling and governing wisely and justly. The one who not only is named, but is showcased in all of his pomp and splendor is the fool. Now, there's, there's some irony here, and Gregory, once again, I'm going to follow his, he's got four points here that, that I think are, are golden to, to contemplate. He says this, this episode is both humorous and ironic in terms of, of Vashti's refusal, then his summoning the seven wise men, his seven, you know, this is, this is uh, if this were a modern case, this would be Karshina, Shether, Admetha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Memekin, attorneys at law. This is the most prestigious law practice in all of Persia. And they come in, and he asks for their legal advice. And Memekin speaks up. Apparently, he's the, the senior partner in this enterprise. Memekin says, in the presence of the king, in verse 16, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. He's not giving legal advice. He's actually expanding the question. He's not answering anything. For the queen's behavior, verse 17, will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So they're saying, this is going to be bad for all of us. Any self-respecting man who wants his wife in submission to him is now in trouble. Because if the queen can do this, then anyone can do this. So we've got to really, we've, we've got to show them something. Well, Gregory said this is both humorous and, ir- and ironic. First of all, because, as I said, the king's asked for legal advice, but instead he's given advice just based on some pragmatic concerns. Personal concerns, uh, frankly, of his advisors. Secondly, the advised punishment is no different from what Vashti has already self-imposed. The king summons Vashti. Vashti says, I am not coming into his presence under these circumstances. So what's her punishment? You are not permitted to come in the presence of the king. (laughs) You see, there's, there's there's a parody here. But thirdly, the counselors have been summoned because the wife, the king can't control his wife with a decree. So what's their answer? We need another decree for all the women because the first one worked so good, right? This is like a gun-free zone, right? We just put the sign up and and surely that will solve all our problems, right? So here's the decree that the king to his own wife could not get enforced so that their answer, the seven partners in the law firm decide, well, the answer must be a broader decree that would apply to all women. You see, this is, this is humorous. 
But lastly, the counselors are terrified that what's going to happen is this is going to get out into the kingdom and that the rest of the women in the kingdom will hear about how Vashti disobeyed a direct order of her husband, the king. So what's their answer? They take out a front-page ad in the New York Times to tell everyone what happened. They send another decree throughout all the kingdom warning all the women not to do what Vashti did. <laughs> you see, the, the, the humor here is that they were afraid this is going to get out. So what do they do? They publicize it. So again, we're, we're left with this picture of rather than fixing our eyes upon the opulence and the power and, and all of the, the royal um, instruments, our eye actually should be fixed upon the folly of those who are set to rule over them. The subtle point in this whole sort of satirical, parody kind of of narrative is that Ahasuerus really isn't the king of the world after all. But God, even unnamed, is still ruling and reigning. Now, when we think about in, in light of the, the larger Old Testament narrative, there are other similarities that come out that are, that are pretty suggestive. When we think about this tale of two kingdoms. In the earlier um, Old Testament books, God is, is portrayed as the king who rules over everything. In fact, the prophets talk about one day that all the nations will sort of flow into Jerusalem. Isaiah prophesies about this, that all the nations will flow into Jerusalem. Well, here you have a king in Susa who's, who's invited all the people of the kingdom to come in to him. You have only two places, only two buildings in the entire Old Testament that are given the sort of elaborate descriptions that we have here. God's tabernacle and the palace at Citadel, or the, pa- the palace at Susa. You also only have two places in the scriptures that have this kind of descriptions of gardens. The Garden of Eden, which was a temple, was a tabernacle to the Lord. And here you have a sense sort of tabernacle or a temple to Ahasuerus. And, and what happens is you add these things together, you end up with this not-so-subtle um, comparison of God, his temple, his garden, his banquet, compared over and against Xerxes I or Ahasuerus. But God, as it turns out, is the true king. King Ahasuerus, is, as Gregory says, is merely a parody. It isn't that... The, the true nature of, of all tyrants, that they're merely, merely parodies of the true king. And so when we look and we see the rulers of this world, and whether those rulers are of, of the military persuasion and, and they, they enforce vast borders and, and, and oppress many peoples, or of the economic persuasion, where they, they, they hold the, the bank accounts and the livelihoods of many people in their disposal. And we look at these apparently mighty men or women, and we tend to fret, we tend to worry, we tend to think, well, how is it that they can ever be opposed? They're too mighty. As the saying goes, they're too big to fail. Well, they thought that about Xerxes I, too. 
And what we, we ought to do is just train ourselves. And Esther helps us to train ourselves to look beyond the surface and see that apart from Christ, these, are, these men are parodies of the true king. These men are but parodies of real, legitimate, benevolent authority that's vested in God alone. So as a result, we think about just this comparison. The, the largest and most vast regimes in all of history are merely pale shadows, even parodies of the true kingdom. I think about Psalm 2, where God sits in the heavens, and what does he do? He laughs at those who would dare to oppose him, who would dare to exalt themselves against the infinite, holy name of God. We see the coming of Christ comes with a a very similar kind of theme. I'm going to just look at this very briefly, but turn it with me to Luke. Here you have this, in in Esther 1, you have this scene that announces this royal reign of, of Ahasuerus. We're supposed to be impressed by that. And yet, here behind the scenes is another king. Listen to the way that the birth narrative of Christ opens up in Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So what what does this king do? He summons all people to come to him. Come and be registered. To come, in a sense, submit themselves to his rule such that even he can number you. But notice, there are three different times in this narrative David is mentioned. Luke is making sure that from the very beginning we understand who Jesus is. That he comes from royal blood. That he comes more than that with a royal promise. Verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Do you see the contrast? Here's Caesar Augustus in all of his glory, from the, from the world's perspective. And here's the Christ child coming, the son of David. And yet coming, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and laid in an animal's manger. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, 
peace among those with whom he is pleased. It was customary in the Roman Empire for the Caesars to take on a, a divine claim. Uh, many times when, when a father, a, the, the father of a king died, uh, posthumously, after his death, he was declared to be a god so that his son could say, I am a son of a god. And to take on the title of Caesar and Augustus. And so there's this contrast that's set in motion at the very beginning of Christ's life. Who is the real king? You see the echoes here. Um, Esther sort of lays the stage for to train our eyes to begin to look when Christ comes in ways that most of the people missed. Why Jesus often spoke to the sinners, the tax collectors, the harlots, and said, you, you'll understand this. Because you've been, you, you weren't invited to the, to the other banquet. You weren't part of that other feast. But I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. And Luke declares to us that the angel said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. See, the Caesars claim to be saviors. But Luke is saying, or Luke is, is giving us the testimony of the angel saying, no, there's a, there's a true Savior. It's not Caesar. There's a true king. It's not Augustus. There's a son of David born to this day in the city of David, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And here's the sign of his coming. And eventually we would see that in, in a similar way that... that <clears throat> Ahasuerus responded in anger when his rule, when his kingdom wasn't acknowledged in the way that he thought it ought to be. In a similar way, we see those kinds of things with Herod, with Caiaphas, with Pilate, uh, the figures of, of the New Testament who gave their own condemnation of the true king. And he even wrote on the, the, the placard that hung above his cross, here's the king of the Jews. See, they thought the joke was on Christ. They thought he was the parody. But they had it exactly backwards. It turns out that all the rulers of the world were mocked openly by Christ's resurrection, by Christ's victory at the very cross they thought was to be his point of greatest humiliation and shame. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our, of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever. Part of John's vision in Revelation chapter 11. So we have this, this contrast that's set up. And I think there's one other theme that, that I don't want to miss is we, when we think about Esther and we think about Vashti. You know, and perhaps you've, you've thought about this in, in ways that I have. Where you think, what, what's the point of this, of this whole thing? scene in this event with Vashti. What, what is purpose does this serve to show us? Is, is she to be commended? Is she to be condemned? How, how do we think about this? Well, she's to be commended. And I think in Vashti, we actually see a, a, a prefiguring of the church of Jesus Christ. And again, against the backdrop of the kingdom of this world, thinking that he can, the kings of this world, the kingdom of this world, thinking it can command the church of Jesus Christ. And Vashti said no. I will not go and be paraded before men in this way. I will not give myself. I will not 
submit myself to the indignity of being paraded around like this. And I think about what happens in much of evangelicalism today. Uh, Paul Washer has a, a, a sermon I heard years ago where he, he describes in vivid detail about the, the, the church, men basically dressing the, the church up as if she's a harlot. Putting lipstick on her and teasing her hair up and putting her in seductive clothes and sending her out before the world. And he thought, you don't want to be there when the Lord returns one day. I said, that's my wife that you've done that to. That's my wife that you've dressed up and paraded around like that. And I think in Vashti, we see a cautionary tale. We also see something hopeful, where Vashti says, I won't do this. And if it costs me my life, so be it. But I will not submit myself to the lechery and the leering of men. And I think there's an encouragement to us as the church of Jesus Christ. To, to, to say, as Vashti did, whatever it costs us, we're not going to pour ourselves out in that way. And that's shocking language, but it's the language of the Scriptures, isn't it? God's people again and again and again are, are accused of whoring after the idols of the world, to trying to make themselves like that, to try to dress themselves up and look that way. Um, Vashti could very easily have gone along with all, the, all of it and, and used it to gain some additional favors. I mean, the king was in a compromised state of mind, obviously. She could have earned all kinds of things in that episode. And she said, I'm not doing that. This is beneath the dignity of my office, not only as queen, but also the high office of wife. I won't do that. And there's a lesson for the church of Jesus Christ to say, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, we're not going to paint ourselves up like the world and parade ourselves before men thinking that that will satisfy them. We will see and believe on the authority of God's word that there is a greater king and a greater kingdom. And we submit ourselves to him not to the desires of the world. So, as you think about Esther, think about that sort of subtle clash that's set up from the very first chapter. Of Here's these two kingdoms. One is ostentatious. It's visible. It's, it's, it's everything the world wants. It's, it's lots to see. There's something for everybody. There's food, there's drink, there's a party, there's... there's, there's any kind of, of, of worldly desire or indulgence you might pursue, it's there for the taking. But in this other kingdom, there's a, there's a, there is a, shall we say, a narrow way that's proposed for us. There is another kingdom. There's a kingdom that's not like the world that comes and it begins in very, very humble ways. And yet there's a promise. There's a promise of growth. There's a promise of hidden power. There's a promise of delayed gratification, but unspeakable glory. Which kingdom will we pursue? The easy, accessible, popular one? Or the one that's veiled? Except to those who have eyes of faith. Those who are willing to look beyond the obvious and see what God says is actually there. Anything else that stood out to you in, in chapter 1? Anything that's as you read through this or have read it before, anything remarkable.
Nothing's changeable unless we want to change, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's possible. I mean, we we just don't know. There's there's a sort of a reading into it based on some of the uh, some linguistic assumptions in the Hebrew. We just don't know for sure. Uh, it, it be just the, the, the context itself with all of the drinking going on, I think a reasonable person, and it seems as if Vashti is in that category, a reasonable person might have concluded that there were further expectations than just her putting herself in royal garb and walking around and letting them admire her pretty face. So it's, it's reasonable to think there at least may have been more than that, but we just don't know. Um, but the, real, the, the, the primary point is even if, even if all it was was for her to, to be paraded around as, as a trophy wife, I mean, even if she were to remain fully dressed, it still was a gross indignity. Well, it's certainly that. And also, he's not even treating her as a wife, but as, as, as a concubine, as property. And, and under Persian custom, even that was beyond the pale. Uh, to treat her, to treat an actual lawful legal wife as a concubine was... Well, it, was, it was a low-class move. You know, again, the, as we've looked at uh, judges over the past few months, in, in some ways I've thought, <clears throat> these are some of the easiest sermons I've preached, uh, not in terms of the exegesis or how to put the sermon together, but in terms of convincing you that there's contemporary relevance, it's been very, very easy to do. And, and again, with the book of Esther, I mean, the, the thought of a, a world controlled by powerful and wealthy people and, and a kingdom that seems impenetrable, and the odds seem thoroughly stacked against God, God's people. I mean, do I have to, how much persuasion do you need to say, yeah, that, that has some immediate relevance? Uh, I don't think I have to work too hard to convince you of that. And, and nor does it take much to convince you that the work of God in our day is often comparatively very subtle. We think about God's work when he stretched his mighty arm and outstretched hand in Egypt, for example, and all of the curses that he brought upon the people of Egypt. And we think, well, compared to that, God's work in our day seems pretty subtle, doesn't it? Maybe even absent. So again, the book of Esther is helpful to us in in, in a sense to recalibrate our instruments, to train our eyes to see God when he is not immediately visible. When, when, in fact, when much of the world says, as Peter tells us, they're going to say in 2 Peter 3, where is the promise of his coming? In those last days, Peter says, scoffers are going to come. And they're going to say, everything's happening just the same as it always has from the beginning. Where is this God? 
that you speak about? Where is this God that you say is going to come to judge the world in righteousness? And Esther helps us to, to remain steadfast, seeing with eyes of faith. What is not, not apparent at all to those who don't have faith, but it's also very difficult to see, uh, even for those who are in Christ. Don't we have to be trained to see those things? Don't we have to remind ourselves? Don't we have to recondition ourselves to see those kinds of things? Um, To to look intentionally, uh, to see God where he is maybe not as immediately present as we would like for him to be. So it challenges us to consider those areas in our own lives where we think, do I see God here? Is is God absent? And, And of course, to persuade ourselves... You know, we, we, we have to do some self-preaching, don't we? Preach to ourselves and say, God is here. We, we know that as a matter of, of, of faith. We know that God is here. But where is he? How is he manifesting himself? Yeah. In a very similar way, yeah. Yes. And there's a, but, but even there, there's a, a dramatic contrast that will emerge. Yeah. All right. Well, that puts us 15 minutes to the hour. I think, where's that clock? Yeah, 15 minutes to the hour. Well, let's pray and we'll, we'll take a short break. Father, you are so good to us and we're, we pray that more and more we would be astounded at, your present work. Lord, forgive us when we fail to look with the eyes of faith that you've given us, when we fail to see you, uh, when we fail to take notice of your works, of your promises, of your presence by your Spirit in us and among us. Lord, will you help us as we study through the book of Esther uh, to train our eyes uh, to see you more clearly to see you in everyday, ordinary circumstances, to see your work governing and and ruling by your providence all things from the least to the greatest, and particularly for the good of your people, for the good of your church. Uh, We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.